And in case you didn't know, all that was just shared there, that's actually from the book of Job. Job is in some ways a little bit of a heavy book. It's a little bit of a strong book, but it's a really needed and a necessary book. So I want to first um, kind of introduce the season we are in and why I think studying the book of Job is an important uh, thing for us. So does anybody know what Christian season we are currently in? Lent. Lent is the current season that we are a part of, okay? Uh, and I know for some of you, you might not know what Lent is. Lent is something that we've been practicing here at Bethany for the past three to four years that basically every other Christian has been practicing for like hundreds of years, okay? That Lent is a season of the Christian kind of life where we seek to prepare ourselves for Jesus' death and resurrection. That just as Advent is the preparation for Christmas, Lent is the preparation for Jesus' death and resurrection, And I want to encourage you to really take Lent seriously this year. I think that Lent really matters. I think it is one of the most neglected Christian disciplines that will actually align your life with Christ. So I want to invite you really specifically to do three things this Lent, okay, to actually take Lent seriously. The first thing, and I know this will sound as a pastory thing, but it's true, okay? The first thing, I want to challenge you to make sure you are here every single Sunday. I think I want to invite you to prioritize gathering together. I know that that might sound like a pastory thing to say, and it is, but it's also true. Amen? Amen. It's good to gather together. So I want to invite you to do that. And then when we gather together every Sunday, like we have in the past, we are going to be praying the prayer of confession together as a corporate prayer, reminding us that Lent is all about repentance, confession, stillness, really connecting with Jesus. So I want to invite you to make sure that you're here every week. Secondly, what I want to invite you to do is to actually give up something for Lent to fast something, to sacrifice something. That Lent is based on the fact that Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, so we fast something for 40 days together during Lent to prepare for his death and resurrection. So I want to invite you to give up something for Lent. You can give up lots of different things. People sometimes give up like sugar, chocolate, like Netflix, social media, alcohol, coffee, whatever it may be. I want to invite you to think through what can you give up for Lent. I want to be clear with this, okay? When we give up things for Lent, we give up them not like some health diet. That's not what it is, okay? It's actually for our spiritual focus. So don't give up something just to become more healthy. You give up something actually to connect deeper with Jesus. And then, then when you long for that thing or the time you maybe spend on that thing, you're supposed to be able to engage in prayer. That's kind of the point, okay? So I want to invite you actually to give up something for Lent. Lent technically started on Wednesday, but that's okay if you start today because it's better to start than to not, right? So I want to invite you to really think through of something that you can give up. Each of our kids do this. We do this as a family. Um, I will say this. If you choose to give up something, and you should, it'll become difficult, and there'll be temptations pretty much almost instantly, okay? A few years ago, I gave up chips, which are, I know it might sound funny, but for me, chips are like my favorite snack, and it's like the thing I most look forward to. Uh, maybe not in life, but like at night for sure, right? So I decided to give up this thing that I really, really enjoy. And so I gave up chips, and I'm not making this up. Like, like, Lent started on, like, Wednesday. I'm pretty sure on the Thursday or Friday, Jane, who's in charge of our children's ministry, she came up to me. She said, hey, Andrew, we're doing this big craft uh, for kids, and we need Pringles cans. She said, do you think you could eat, like, 12 or 14, you know, cases, not cases, 12 or 14 things of Pringles over the next few weeks and then just, you know, save, save the, case, the cans, right? And I said, you got to be kidding me, right? My favorite thing, instantly when I give up for Lent, right, then there's that kind of temptation. That's what you should expect. But it's okay and it's important because it's about actually learning to actually sacrifice and fast so we can connect with Jesus. Okay, the third thing I want to invite you to do, first show up, fast. The third thing I want to invite you to do is to pray every day. But I want to invite you into praying something specific at a specific time. 
Okay? I want to invite you into praying something specific at a specific time. I want to invite you to actually put a reminder on your phones to go off at 7.14 every day, either a.m. if you're a morning person or p.m. if you're an evening person. Okay? And here's why. I want to invite you to pray at 7.14, either a.m. or p.m. every day, 2 Chronicles 7.14. You can see why, okay? I want to read to you this passage, and I think that this is a good prayer for Lent. It's a good prayer for us to be praying and studying and sitting with every single week, every single day. In 2 Corinthians 7, 14, we read this. Then if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Does anyone want to agree with me? This is a good prayer for Lent, Amen. I want to invite you to pray that every single day. Put a reminder in your phones. Let it do something good and not just distract you, but remind you of something important, to actually pray every single day. So that's what I want to invite you into for Lent. I want to invite you into being here, into praying the prayer of confession together. I want to invite you into giving something up, and then to praying, actually, 2 Chronicles 7.14 every single day. And you can put that in your phone right now, and you can use your phones in a good way in church. Look at that. Okay? So with that, then, today, I want to actually start to explore the book of Job. I think the book of Job connects really well with the season of Lent. Because what the book of Job is about, if you're actually unsure, if you're new to the book of Job, that in some ways is great, because you're going to get to know it really well over the next few weeks. What the book of Job is all about is how should we speak to God? How should we relate to God? How do we even like connect with God in the midst of difficulty, suffering, pain, and challenges? That's what the book of Job is all about. It's actually about how we are called to speak and connect and relate to God in the midst of challenges. Because this is just true, and I'm sorry to let you know this, but this is obvious, right? In life, you will face challenges, correct? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Actually, what Lent reminds us of is the fact that life is not always rosy and perfect and success stacked upon success stacked upon success. That instead, life has a habit of taking us into the valleys and the challenges and the difficulties. And what Lent is all about, and then what Job is all about, really, is asking us the question, how should we relate to God when we're in those spaces, when we're in difficult places? How do we talk to him? How do we connect with him? What are the right things to say or to do to ensure that our faith not only survives difficult challenges, but might even grow on the outside of it? So that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to take a look at the book of Job. And as I said, it might be new to you. And in some ways, the book of Job, actually, is incredibly unique. There really isn't another book in the Bible like the book of Job. The book of Job is this long, sustained, poetic argument, really, about how do you speak to God in suffering and in difficulty. Job has this, like, flair and style all of its own. Robert Alter is probably one of the best, if not the best, translators of the Hebrew Bible. And he writes this about the book of Job. I want to read it to you and to see how he kind of describes um, describes this book. He says this, the book of Job is in several ways the most mysterious book of the Hebrew Bible. Formerly, it's a sustained debate in poetry. It resembles no other text in the canon, which means it doesn't look like anything else in the Old Testament. And that's true, because Job is not like a historical accounting of things. Job is not like a, I don't know, a journalistic eye-for-eye eye kind of, you know, accounting of things. Job is a poetic accounting of things. It's really, really unique. And I actually think then the best way to approach the book of Job is actually as a play. That's what I want to suggest to you as we start to get into this. That we should approach the book of Job like a play with different scenes and different acts and different like soliloquies and people speaking and all of that. It's a sustained debate in poetry. Alter continues and he says, the book of Job is of course a theological argument, but it is a theological argument conducted in poetry. 
He says this, and this is true. In careful attention to the role that poetry plays in the argument may put what is said in somewhat different light from, which, from the one in which it is generally viewed. So that's what we're going to start to get into. This book that's written in poetry with all these different metaphors that actually build on one another. But rather than we talk about it, I actually want to start to just read it and to work it through here today. Okay? So we're going to work through the majority, actually all of chapter one here today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to chapter one. I'm going to read to you some sections, and then we're going to work it through kind of one by one here together. Okay? So we read this, starting in Job 1, verse 1. It says this, There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, which is an awful lot of sheep. That's the answer for that, okay? 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Somebody asked her the first service, asked why it names female donkeys. I have no idea. You can figure that out on your own. But yeah, apparently 500 female donkeys as well. It says this, he also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in the entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their home, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. And from this, from this, I want to learn and notice a number of things. The first thing I want to point out is what the text says about Job, that Job was blameless, a man of complete integrity. Or as the KGV interprets this and translates this verse, the KGV says that Job was perfect. That's pretty strong language for someone, isn't it? Right? Like, like the text is saying that Job was perfect, blameless. In fact, God goes on in a few verses later, as we'll get to, and says the exact same thing. He was a man of complete integrity. We also learn uh, from this that Job is from the land of Uz. And this is interesting, because what this means is that Job isn't an Israelite. He's not from Israel. He's not Jewish. He's not an Israelite. So what we have, then, in the Jewish canon is the Jewish canon is teaching us that the most upright, blameless, perfect person isn't Jewish or an Israelite. Right? Let that shape your theology for a little bit. Okay? So this is how it's getting set up. It's from us. He's from a different space. Okay? And he's perfect. He's really like a man full of integrity. And it gives us some descriptions of that integrity, actually. It says this in the text. Um, he goes on and he says, or I'm just going to find it. He says, he was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. That Job was active in resisting evil. He was active in doing good. That in the Old Testament specifically, sin is often seen almost as like this force or an animal that is about to pounce upon you. He is active in resisting evil and making sure that he stays faithful to God. But what is interesting is he does this activity you know, towards God, not only for himself, but also for his children. It says this, when these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed gods in their hearts. So what the text says. This was Job's, what does it say? Regular. Regular. Like ongoing, consistent practice. We have the picture of a man who is consistently good and full of integrity in all that he does. And we also learned that this integrity has actually also increased his wealth. That as the text says, he has like 7,000 sheep, which is a lot of sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. And just in case we don't know what that means, right, the narrator tells us that he was the richest person in the area. 
right? So Job is a man of complete integrity. He's also financially, like, wealthy, the most wealthy person. And in this case, actually, wealth is a sign of God's faithfulness upon him. Now, the Bible doesn't always take this view. Sometimes the Bible has different perspectives on things. You might not realize that, but it does. In the prophets, actually, wealth is most often a sign of greed, oppression, and a lack of care for the poor. But here in this text, it's actually a sign that Job was walking with God, of God's faithfulness and blessing upon him. Not only that, we see that he's like a family man, like a real family man. And there's this beautiful things where it says that Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their homes, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. It sounds almost like perfect, right? It sounds like they're almost having like Christmas all the time, right? So what we have here then is the Bible kind of setting stuff up. And here we see like a perfect man with perfect finances and a perfect family, right? So far, there's no real tension in the story, is there? But remember, we should take this as like a play, right? This is kind of like act one, scene one, right? This is kind of setting stuff up. It's giving us the context here. And things are about to have some tension or some conflict because if there is no conflict, there is no story, actually. There is no like movement to it. So let's see what happens next. Um, In this passage, just so we're clear, we're going to have to spend some time to both kind of unpack because there's a lot of misunderstanding with it. Here we read this. One day, then, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked uh, the accuser. Or in your Bibles, it might say Satan, um, or it might say the adversary. Or if you have a study Bible, there might be a little note there that'll say it's possibly both at the bottom of your Bible, okay? So it might say all those things. And we'll get into some translation and nerdy Hebrew here today, because you can't have a Sunday without nerdy Hebrew. That is the rule, okay? It's not quite the rule, yeah. It says this. Satan answered the Lord. I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He's the finest man in all the earth, right? God agrees. He is the best. He is the pinnacle. I mean, I would love for God to say that about me, right? He's really pointing him out, being like, this man, he's got it all together, right? He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. The accuser, though, replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. He says this, you have always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has. Then he will surely curse you to your face. The accuser is saying, really, really, Job only follows you, God, because you give good things to him. You take away those good things. He will curse you. He will cut you out. He will accuse you, blame you, and leave you. That's the test that's going on. That's kind of the wager that is happening here And then we read this. All right, you may test him, the Lord said to the accuser. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So the accuser left the Lord's presence. As I said, this is a tough passage to understand, often because we read a lot into it from actually later wrote books. So I want to take a moment and actually work through three things. I want to work through the setting, which is the heavenly court. I want to work through the antagonist, um, which is the accuser. And then lastly, I want to work around what is the actual conflict around And the book of Job, just so we're clear, and we'll get into this, the book of Job is not why do bad things happen to good people. The book of Job is is how do you speak to God when bad things happen to good people. That's what it's about. Let's start to explore this. First, the setting. The setting of this passage is actually in something called the heavenly court. And there was this idea in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Bible that there was like this heavenly court that God ruled over. That God wasn't the only like spiritual being, that there were these other beings or angels, or as the text says, like heavenly beings, And there was this court where all of these kind of beings had both some independence and also accountability, okay? That there were these quasi, 
I don't know, independent beings that reported to God. This idea, actually, you can see in the Old Testament. We often skip over it just because we don't quite pay attention for it, but it's there. I'll give you some examples. First, in chapter 1, we read this, right? That one day the members of the heavenly court, or might say sons of God, that's what it technically is in Hebrew, but it's about this idea of a heavenly court, came to present themselves before the Lord. We see other examples in the Old Testament. So, for example, in Psalm uh, 82, we read this. God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. There were these heavenly beings that populated this court where they both had independence and accountability. Or we see this, hints of this in verses like Psalm 95. We read this. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all, what's the text say? God's small g. Right? God's small g. There are these other beings. Right? Or we read sometimes of God being like the Lord of hosts or the Lord of heaven's angels' armies or those sort of phrases. That in the Old Testament, there is this idea of there being a court that God ruled over. And as I said, there's both some independence, right? Because the accuser comes to God and God says, where have you been? Right? Some independence, but also some accountability because the accuser has to come and report to God. Okay? So that's kind of the setting. This might be new. Uh, you might not have realized that, but that's there. That's the setting. Second part that we have to really work through is this term and the person of Satan. Or in Hebrew, um, it's a different word. Does anybody know, this is kind of like nerdiness, anybody know what the word for Satan in Hebrew is? It's kind of a trick question. It's Satan, actually. Yeah, you just didn't know that, actually. That the word literally there that says Satan is the word ha-satan. That's what it is in Hebrew, actually. That's where we get the term and the word Satan from. And here, though, here we have to be really, really careful because what happens in theology, I don't know if you realize this, but it does in the Bible, is that some ideas develop and grow and change over time, right? So we have to be really, really careful here is that we don't take ideas that developed and grew over time that were later and import them back into an earlier wrote, wrote, an earlier wrote book in Job. So specifically, what I want to suggest to you today is that the character of the accuser should not be completely equated with the devil or the evil one from the New Testament, which is much later wrote and much further developed. Okay? We can't read those ideas back into this. And I'll explain why both with Hebrew and with grammar, because we're going to get like a little bit nerdy here today. Okay? So as I said, in Hebrew, the word there that is translated as either Satan, the accuser, or the adversary, or maybe the prosecuting attorney, that word in Hebrew is hasatan. And what it literally means is an accuser, is an attacker, is an adversary, is somebody who comes against the plans of somebody else. That's what the word means. Now, it becomes to mean much, much more later on, but that's what the word means at its base level. Let me give you some examples of this word and how it occurs frequently in the Old Testament. It just isn't translated as Satan. It's translated as accuser or adversary. Let me give you some examples of this. So we read, for example, in 1 Samuel 29.4, uh, David is going to battle with the Philistines on their team, actually. Listen to what the Philistines say. He can't go into battle with us. What if he turns against us in battle and becomes our adversary? What that word actually means is what if he turns in battle and becomes a Satan towards us, a ha-satan, an adversary, an accuser, an attacker of us. Okay? Or, for example, Psalm 109, we read this. While the wicked slander me and tell lies about me, they surround me with hateful words and fight uh, against me for no reason. I love them, but they try to destroy me with accusations. Anyone want to guess what that word is in Hebrew? Satan, ha-satan, Satan, accusations, adversary, attack. 
That's that exact same word that is in the word uh, in the book of Job. He says this, and I love them, but they try to destroy me with accusations even as I am praying for them. So the base meaning of the word Satan in Hebrew is a word that means adversary, accuser, and attacker, which is why then we should be very, very careful, especially in a very old book, in the book of Job, with not to import new ideas about the devil or all of the tempter from the New Testament into an older work. We should be really careful of that, because I don't think we can equate the two of them. Instead here, I don't believe that this should be translated as Satan. It should be translated as the accuser, the adversary, the attacker, that sort of thing. That's how it should be translated. We know this not only from the Hebrew itself, we also know this from the grammar of the Hebrew. Okay, so here's some of the grammar nerdiness, okay? Here in Hebrew, the word Satan has a definite article. It technically says Ha-Satan. And any time a word has a definite article, it does not mean a name, it means somebody fulfilling a function. It's a title. Right? It's the Satan, it's the attacker, it's the accuser. That's what it means. That whenever you have that definite article, it's a title, not a proper name. And therefore, it designates a function. So what this all means is that here, there is some heavenly being that is actually fulfilling this role of being an accuser, an attacker, an adversary. Okay? Richard Middleton, who I rely on a lot in this series, he summarizes all of this this way, in case this is like all like super nerdy Hebrewness for you. He says this. And I agree with him. He says, the accuser, Hasatan and Job, is not a human being. But neither is he the full-fledged figure of Satan or the devil found later in Jewish and Christian thought. The accuser is rather one of the heavenly court, a group referred to in Job 1 verse 6 and 2 verse 1 as the sons of God, equivalent to what we typically call angels. This suggests that we should be careful, and I agree, in taking the figure of the accuser in the book of Job as representing a clearly delineated theology. That's academic language for saying we shouldn't just assume that it's the same person that is tempting Jesus in the New Testament. We shouldn't actually just equate those two things, right? Because Job was not aware of that. It says this, given that he shows up only in the prologue, it may be that the accuser is no more than a literary figure meant to get the story going. Because remember, this book is told in what? Poetry. Poetry. It's like a play that's meant to move things along for us. Right? So there's lots there for us to understand. But what I want to be clear with is I don't think we should equate what is happening in the prologue with the person of the devil or Satan that I do believe in, right, that we read of more in the New Testament. It's actually just much more complex than that. Right? So that's the first two things. Where's the setting? It is in uh, the heavenly court. And then who is the adversary? It's someone called literally the accuser, the person who is accusing uh, Job. And then thirdly, what is the conflict all about? And here's where I want to be clear. I think on a popular level, many people think that the book of Job is about why do bad things happen to good people? I don't think that's actually what the book of Job is about. That Job isn't so much about suffering, but instead about speech. It's about how we relate to God in suffering. It's about what are the holy ways for us to talk to a holy God when we are in challenge, difficulty, and calamity. That's what the book of Job is about. And we know this because notice with me about the test that happens between God and the accuser. Notice with me what the test is all about. The accuser says this, but reach out and take away everything Job has. And listen to what he says will happen. He will surely curse you to your faith. Right? He'll surely curse you. It's about how Job will speak to God in suffering. This book is not about why do bad things happen to good people. That question, honestly, is never really answered in the book of Job. If that was to be the main point of the book of Job, you think that God might directly answer it, right? 
If that was the main point of the book of Job, you think that the accuser actually would get a lot more theology and discussion. He shows up briefly in the first and the second chapter and is never mentioned again. Right? So if that was the main point, you think there'd be a lot of talk about who is this accuser? Why does he get to do this? Job honestly doesn't seem to care about that whatsoever as we move past the book. Instead, what the book of Job is about, what the book of Job is about is how should we speak rightly to God when we go through difficult things? That's what this book raises. What is the right way to understand and relate to God in challenge, in calamity, in difficulty? Because this is just true, okay? This is what I have experienced pastorally over now almost being a pastor, if you can believe this. It'll be 20 years this summer that I've been a pastor, okay? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a fine thing. What I have noticed is that when people go into challenges, when they go into difficulties, when they experience sufferings, that this will be either the place where they find faith or they lose it. That's what happens. And so Job, what it raises for us, is the question then of how do we speak to God in the midst of difficulty, suffering, and challenges to make sure that we don't lose our faith, but that we might even find it on the other side of things. This is what the book of Job is about. So... We see all this kind of get set up. This is all like act one, scene two, right? We read that Job is perfect. And then now there's kind of the dramatic tension. And next we're going to read of the calamity that Job experiences. So let's see what happens next. We read this. Um, and this is, I'm just going to be honest. This, this is brutal. Um, it's awful. Um, and we're going to kind of work through it. And Job's going to actually speak quite strongly to it in a few chapters. We read this. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. And I want to invite you to picture this as I'm reading, as a play. That's really how it's meant to be. There's going to be this, like, almost compounding grief, these, like, waves of things that are happening. Listen to how, picture it kind of, like, happening in your head. A messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Picture that. Then what does the text say? But while he was still speaking, he hadn't even finished that report yet. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up all your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, hadn't even finished that, right? A third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And again, while he was still speaking, hadn't even finished it, another messenger arrives with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Now, I don't think you can describe this passage in any other way than brutal. That's what's going on. It's actually wrote in such a way to mimic what Job is feeling. Because Job just must be feeling like gut punch after gut punch after gut punch. And it's meant to be that way, almost like waves, where it's like one person speaks, and then the next disaster happens, and the next disaster happens, and it just keeps going. And what you know, if you have ever been through anything difficult, is that, follow with me, grief doesn't add up, disasters don't add up, they compound exponentially. I want to say that again, that grief and disasters don't add up, they compound exponentially. Meaning that one disaster and another disaster added together doesn't feel just like two disasters. It feels like seven. Are we kind of following, right? If you've ever been through something really difficult and then something else happens that might be minor, right? But it'll feel not minor because of everything else. 
that grief and weight and burden and disasters compound. That's what Job is feeling. And he's just wrecked over this. He almost has no time to even pause in the midst of process because it's one thing after another, after another, after another. And then, as I said, the whole point of this book, though, is how will we speak to God in suffering? Right? Because that was what the accuser said. He said, you take away this and Job will curse God. Job will cut him out. Job will be done with you. So there's kind of this tension of this moment. Well, what will Job say? How will he respond? Let me read to you what he says. And this kind of closes off chapter one. Job stood up and he tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said this, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. And then I'm going to focus in on this verse for a second. It says this. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. You see, that's the point of the book of Job. How do you speak rightly to God in the midst of suffering? Right? How do you speak correctly? What's the right way for us to respond to a holy God, right? When in, kind of put it this way, unholy situations. And so notice what Job says. And I'm going to be honest with this. What Job says here, I think is kind of forced. What Job says here kind of falls a little bit flat. What Job says here doesn't seem, I don't know, accurate. I know this, okay, because I've read the rest of the book, all right? And Job doesn't stop here. He kind of just says it. Like, this isn't the end of what he says. But notice, he's just lost literally everything. And what's his response? I came naked from my mother's womb. I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I have, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Does that fit with Job's experience? Anyone want to be like real with that? Like it doesn't, right? So what's going on here? What's going on here? First of all, I don't think that Job is lying. I don't think that at all. Remember, this is a man of complete integrity. This is a blameless, perfect person. That is not what's happening here. What I honestly think that is happening is simply the same thing you have likely experienced with other people. If you have ever gone to someone after a deep disaster, after they've been through something really difficult, after, I don't know, a calamity of sorts, you might say to them, how are you doing? And their gut response might be, we're getting through it, or I'm okay, or whatever. Now, you know that that isn't true, but it's not that they're lying. It's just that the grief they haven't had time to process yet, they don't have the language. So it's like they give the safe response, the expected response, the regular response. I think that's the same thing that Job is doing here. He's kind of giving the safe, regular, expected response of saying, well, you know, God gives and takes away, and I'm going to praise him in the midst of it. I know that that isn't what Job fully feels, because in two chapters later, in Job 3, we have what scholars like to term in Job 3. Do you want to know what they call Job 3? They call it Job's death rant. That's the technical term for it. Okay? So Job isn't going to stay in this space. He's going to move to a different space. But really, it raises the question then for us, what is the right way to respond to God when bad things happen? What is the right way to respond to God when bad things happen? Job here shows us one option, right, of praising God. He's going to show us a lot more different options. But this is the question of the book of Job. How do we respond to God in the midst of difficulty, calamity, you know, challenges, obstacles, loss? Because as I said, unfortunately, but welcome to Lent, okay, life does not always get better. Sometimes there are challenges, and we need to actually wrestle with the question of how should we respond to God. So what does this mean for us all here today? Well, today... I'm hoping not to clear up every single question about the book of Job. I don't think you could do that in one sermon, and if you tried to, it would be a bad sermon, okay? Instead, what I want to do here today is I want to open us up to this book to start to give us some of the context 
to start to give us some of the foundation or themes that we can start to really understand it, that we can start to wrestle with it. Because Lent is actually about wrestling, actually about wondering, actually about taking some of those discipleship steps of sitting with things, bringing it to Jesus, and asking him, what do we do with this? So today, today, here's my main point. As you know, I always have a main point and a challenge. Today, though, what's different is my main point is not actually a point, it's a question. Here's the question that I think Job raises that I want to ask you today, that I want to invite you to wrestle with, that I want to invite you to sit with. Job is going to wrestle with it, Job's friends are going to wrestle with it, and God is going to answer it at the end of the book. But today I want to invite you just to wrestle with this question. What do you think? How do you think that we should respond when disaster, calamity, or difficulty comes upon us? That's the question I want to invite you to think through today. How do you think we should speak or relate to God when there is bad things that happen and they are unjust and undeserved? What is the right way for Christians, for holy people? Remember, that's the setup of the book. The most holy person ever is going to speak to God. Right? So what is the right way for us to speak to God? Is it silence? Is it praise? Is it accusation? Is it blame? Is it cursing? Is it like, what, what is it? What is the right way to speak to God? And today, I'm not going to answer that question because that would actually be faulty discipleship. Right? For me to answer it without you working it through would not be right. I will be clear. I will give you my thoughts. I will give you what Job thinks. I will share with you what God thinks. But today, I want you to think. I want you to answer that question of how do you think the right way to respond to God is in the midst of calamity, onslaught, difficulty, challenges, loss, whatever it may be. Because as I said, as I said, as a pastor who's been pastoring for many years, I know that it's when we hit those difficult seasons that this is also the chance, it's also the space where sometimes people find their faith or lose it. And I think the difference between those two, I think the difference between those two is how we choose to relate to God in that moment. It's how we choose to speak to him. It's how we choose to connect with him. So I want to invite you for this week, here's my challenge, just to think about that question. How do you think we should respond to God in suffering, in difficulty, in challenge? You might be in suffering, difficulty, and challenge, and then this is a really present question for you. Or perhaps you're not in that season, but what we know is that life has a habit of taking us there at some point. So we should prepare ahead of time. What the book of Job invites us into is to wrestle and to wonder with the same questions he is. What is the right way to relate to a God when bad things are happening? That, as I said, honestly, the book of Job is not about why do bad things happen to good people. There are lots of reasons for that, right? The fact that our world is broken, the fact that there is idolatry, the fact that there is sin and Satan and evil one, the fact that you do wrong things and so do I. Job doesn't so much answer that. Job wants to answer the question, okay, when we face difficulty, how should we respond? How should we speak to God? How should we connect to him? Because your choices in those moments will really determine which way you go, whether you walk with him or walk away from him. And this is what I want to raise for us to really consider and to work through. And as I said today, this is a question I'm not answering today. We will answer it as we work through this really important, poetic, deep, strange in some ways, and mysterious book. But I want to invite you simply to wrestle with that question this week. That's my challenge for each and every one of you. Would you think through, how do you think you should relate to God in suffering? And what I'd like to just push on just a little bit is I don't think this question is as easily answered as some people might think, right? We're going to see some people with some very easy answers. They're called Job's friends, okay? And spoiler alert for the book, they're wrong, okay? We're going to find out that. So I want to invite you just to push past perhaps easy answers and to just think this through for yourself. I think that that really matters. 
And so to help you with this, here's my challenge for you. I want you to think through this question, but specifically what I want to invite you to do is to read Job chapter 1, 2, and 3 this week. We already read Job 1, so you're like a third of the way done. That's not too bad, okay? I want to invite you then to just read really like Job 2 and 3, and in it you're going to see some of the ways that Job speaks. You'll read his little death rant, and it is a death rant, and you'll start to hear about how the holiest person on the earth speaks to God. And this is what I want to invite you to do, to pay attention to Scripture, to pray, to listen, to wrestle with it. Because I think that's what Lent is all about. So today, what's my main point and my challenge? It's the same thing. How do you think we should speak or relate to God in suffering, disaster, and difficulty? And this is what we're going to pursue working through together, communally, over the next few weeks. So with that, would you join with me in prayer here this morning? God, I ask, ask for each and every one of us, Will we continue actually to reach out to you, to connect with you, to hear you, to even wrestle some of this stuff with you. I pray, God, for those who are in the deep challenges and who feel a lot like Job, I pray, God, today would they know your strength, your mercy, your hope, would they know that you are with them? I pray for each and every one of us, God, might we reach out to you and really wrestle with this question and wrestle with you about what is the right way to respond to you when challenging, happen, challenging things happen, because they do. And so, God, I pray in all of this, might you give us faithfulness, might you give us hope, but might you also lead us as we seek to really wrestle with this book, to learn it, to understand it. And I pray, God, would you speak to each and every one of us as we sit with it. And I pray this all in the wonderful name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. And then to close today, uh, we're going to pray together. Uh, what we always pray for Lent is the prayer of confession. So I want to invite you to stand if you are able. And we're going to pray corporately out loud the prayer of confession today. After reading the book of Job and kind of sitting with it, I think this is the right way for us to end our services by reminding ourselves that really we are dependent on God in all things. So would you pray with me this prayer together? Let's pray. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. So might you see God and sense him this week? Might you continue to wrestle with him in those questions? As always, if you have any need whatsoever, things are particularly challenging, there are people in our prayer room off to my left through those doors there that would be more than ready and willing to meet with you and to pray with you. Other than that, we hope to see you back here next week and read Job 1 to 3 if you can do that. All right, as always, grace and peace. Bye-bye.